This morning's scripture reading comes from John chapter 12. If you're looking in the Bibles in your pew, you'll find that at page 1143, or you can also follow along, of course, on the screens behind you. If you are able, I would ask you for the reading of God's word, if you would stand once again, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip ahead a little bit and do verses 23 to 26, beginning John chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Skipping ahead, verse 23, verses 23 to 26. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, The Father will honor him. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. When we began this study last fall, we said that the whole uh, Gospel of John is about believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, uh, then we might have eternal life. We know that because John told us that at the very end of his writing in chapter 20, verse uh, 31, he says that very thing. I've written these things in order that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And by believing uh, you would have eternal life that he told us that. But the impending question or, or the question that next comes is, what does it mean to believe? Is it is it merely to assent? Does it mean that everyone who has sensed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of uh, the living God, is a follower of Jesus? Or does it mean more than that to be a Christian? And I'm using those synonymous because in the beginning, they were called followers of Jesus long before they were ever called Christians. The word disciple literally uh, means to be a learner of or to be a follower of in the way that Jesus uh, most fondly described his disciples were his, as his followers. 
So obviously he means more, or I would, I'd be done already. He means more than simply believing or assenting uh, to a belief or assenting to a set of propositions. He means literally that there's a following of him. In fact, when Christians were first called Christians up in Antioch, uh, it literally means Christ ones or little Christ. That is, you follow him to a degree that you so identify with your leader, you so identify with Christ, that they would even call you Christ-like or Christ ones. Jesus takes this incredible, beautiful, glorious, gorgeous act of devotion and teaches us some principles about what it means to follow him. They're going to be very radical. Mary, Mary washes Jesus' feet with some unbelievably expensive perfume. And Judas complains all about it. Not that she used some, but he just thought that it was so wasteful, such an excess. Why do that? Jesus gives a little commentary on that by saying, well, he's a thief. What else does he want? It's not that he's being altruistic or trying to minister to the poor, but simply line his own pockets. And I'm not looking so much at that as her gracious, glorious act of devotion and how Jesus responds to Judas when he challenges that beautiful act of devotion. And I just want to say that following Jesus, before we get into the particulars, it's very counterintuitive. What I mean by that is the world teaches one way to uh, do an account of your life, the way in which you live your life, the way that you give an account of the way in which you live your life. And Jesus gives a very different account. We'll look at that a little bit later, but I want you to know it's instead of what it is, first to know that it's counterintuitive. It's not the way in which we tend to think. We love uh, the mountains in my family, and we often, uh, years ago when the kids were a little younger than they are now, uh, would go rafting on the Ocoee River. If you know anything about the Ocoee, it's where the 1996 Olympics was held for water sports, because it was, it's a river that's controlled by a dam in Tennessee, and it, it, it has class fours and class fives and one of the few in that area that have that level of uh, rafting. We just wanted to scare our children. <laughs> and the only person that really got scared was me. They, 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 you ever listen to what, the, maybe you don't pay attention to when the guy, raft guy gives you all the instructions of everything to do and what not to do and what to do if things go bad. You know, you're trying to get all your gear on and you're trying to figure out how to best sit in this thing that's real awkward. But he's really going over some important instructions. And one of his important instructions that I remember is if you fall out of this raft, don't fight the current. Go where the current takes you. Because in a lot of these class fives, the water literally pulls you back and down because of the rocks that are there. And if you fight it, which is your what? Your survival instinct kicks in. You've, i got to get out of this. I'm heading to the rocks. 
I got to go toward the shore. That's your natural basic instinct of survival. But he's saying you want to be counter to that. You want to go with it because what's going to happen is going to initially suck you down and scare you to death. But it's going to spit you out further downstream and then it'll be calm and we come pick you up. Well, sure enough, I fall out. Now, it's clearly the guide's fault. Clearly. He apologized and everything. But he scared me to death. The natural instincts of everything in your being is to swim out of that downward pull to the rocks. Jesus is saying in this passage, following me is like this, being counterintuitive to the basic instincts of your survival in this world. If you don't get that, it's one reason we struggle in our Christian life. It's because everything about our Christian life, everything about following Jesus, is counterintuitive to the way that the world teaches us to live. And that's an overarching point that these principles will make no sense to you unless you get first. So let's look at these principles that are very radical and very counterintuitive to the way in which the world tells us to live. And really, our natural basic instinct since the fall has told us to live. And the very first one is following Jesus means abandoning your pride. In the 21st century, your pride, the world tells you the pride might be the only thing you have. It's worth fighting for. It's worth standing up for. It's worth making a big deal about. And Jesus is, is going to say here through this illustration of this woman washing his feet that to follow me means you're willing to abandon your pride, even if somebody's trampling all over you. Let me show you what I mean. Verse 3. What is, what is Mary doing? Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Jesus and his disciples have come to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house for a party. Please understand, if you were here last week, if you weren't here last week, here's what happened. Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, was raised from the dead. He had been dead four days. They were, they were gathered there for a funeral service. They were gathered there for a week-long wake to celebrate the life of Lazarus, who is now dead. Jesus raised him from the dead in chapter 11. And so what was a wake, what was a, a funeral, becomes an awakening party for Lazarus. Can you imagine, in, in, almost in a blink of an eye, in, in this uh, gospel account, he almost has you flipping a switch from dark and doom and loss and heartache to joy. Almost that quickly, because he goes right from raising Lazarus from the dead to a party. And one of the things you did at parties for your guest is you washed their feet. That's why it's so 
out of place in the 21st century. We don't have people over for a party, have them sit down and wash their feet. But they did in the first century because they lived in an arid, dusty, dirty place and they didn't wear covered shoes. They wore uh, uh, what we call sandals today and or barefoot and their feet got incredibly dirty. And you didn't want that in your house. And so the first thing you ask your guests to do is sit down and someone would wash your feet. That happened at every house you went to as a guest. It was as if you were uh, rolling out the welcome mat for them. And in the first century, there was a law in Palestine that you could not require your slaves to wash your guests' feet. Now, they could do it if they volunteered, but you could not require them by law to wash your guests' feet. It was that nasty. It's like asking your guests to come over and clean your toilets. It's just something you don't do. And so you can't, you can't ask your slaves. And so here's this woman, this hostess of a awakening party for her brother, gets down on her hands and knees and washes her guest, Jesus' feet. And therefore, for all to see, she is willing to sacrifice her dignity that even you couldn't require of a slave. But not only that, how does she wash his feet? First thing she does is she has to let down her hair because she's going to use her hair for what you typically used a towel for to wipe and to dry the feet. And instead of a towel, she uses her own hair. And in the first century, women had incredibly long hair. And typically, when you were out in public or you had a party over at your house with people who were not your family, women, you put your hair up. And it was considered a public disgrace for a woman to have her hair down in public. I don't care what the movies have shown about Jesus' time. Women in public would not have had their hair down. The only women who had their hair down in the first century were prostitutes. Because it was an advertisement. Now, that's just that culture. It's the way that they showed uh, some humility and some uh, modesty in the first century. I'm not trying to advocate for either long hair or keep it up in a bun. That's not the point. The point is that's how they did it. And so for her to take her hair down in a public setting, a party, in front of Jesus is an act of public disgrace. And so you put those two together, the fact that she's willing to sacrifice her dignity by doing what she couldn't even require a slave to do, and the fact that she let her hair down in a public setting and therefore sacrificing her dignity, we're talking about her pride that she's putting on the cross as an act of devotion to Jesus. It's like saying, I don't care. This is Jesus. This is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if it means dropping my hair and washing his feet is an act of devotion, so be it. Who cares what anybody thinks? You see how counterintuitive that is? We care a ton about what other people think. 
I mean, in fact, it's almost a compliment to say, oh, well, she doesn't care about what he thinks. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. We call that almost a compliment. But in the first century, that would not be a compliment. She's willing to crucify her pride as an act of devotion. What's pride? Pride is this idea of a picture of a life that you think you deserve. That you're owed. And when you don't have it, it's called a a disappointed life. Whenever I I, I think about this disappointed life or, or God owes me a good life kind of mentality, I think of Catherine Hepburn. I understand if you're young and you don't know who that beautiful actress was. But you can hear her words. Her words ring so true to us. She said, and this is, this is right after she makes it in the movies. Not this quote, but when she says, I have arrived. This is much later in her life, actually toward the end of her life that she wrote this for the New York Times. When I first arrived, I dropped my husband. I was a pig. He was wonderful. And I was a pig. If you know Catherine Hepburn, that's exactly how she talked. I used him and I dropped him. I found that most people, when they arrive and become successful, they do that. We become takers. We feel that we deserve it because we are special. We help ourselves to the world, take and use people. Later on in life, only later on, if you have any kind of character, you begin to realize that you have done what you have done and you become a philanthropist. Here what she's saying. Is that when I arrived, when I when I made it in the movies, when 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 Tracy and I were big in Hollywood, the very first thing I did is I dumped my husband because I thought I deserved a life that fit the specialness of who I am. That is pride. To begin to think that you deserve better than what you have or to think what you have you deserve until you run into that verse in the Bible that says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. What Jesus is saying is that unless you're willing to sacrifice your pride and unless you are willing to give up this idea that God owes you something, You can't follow Jesus. I know we can come to church. I know we can be in Bible studies. I know we can check the box when the federal government asks you, what's your religion, Christian? But that doesn't make you one. Following Jesus does. And Jesus is saying one of the things about following me is that you're willing to sacrifice your pride that God owes me because I'm one of his special people. What happens when a God owes me mentality comes up against a disappointing life? I know nothing that creates a self-righteous person faster than a disappointed life. 
Why? Because pride makes us less human, not more human. It robs us of our humanity. We were always created to be followers of Jesus. And when we make Jesus our follower and we the master, we lose our humanity. We become something less than what God designed us to be. This is what Jesus is getting at in verses 24 and 25 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whether you have arrived, and let's be frank here, most of us in this room, you've arrived. If you will include the entire world of human beings, you have arrived. The poorest among us has arrived. And from their perspective, they see no difference between Catherine Hepburn and you. Because you are so much more than what they have. That's important for us to have a much bigger perspective because what do we typically do? We compare ourselves to our neighbor. And if we're approaching what our neighbor has, or maybe we we approach ourselves by someone who has a little bit more than we do, then we recognize that maybe we haven't arrived. But the truth be told, everyone in this room has arrived. Everyone in the United States, the poorest in the United States, is wealthier than most of the world. But secondly... Following Jesus also means discerning his death. Which brings this question, if following Jesus means crucifying, sacrificing your pride, why? Why do that? And so we're talking about a motivation. That motivation is as important as the sacrificing of the pride. As following Jesus, having the right reason for following Jesus. Some would say, who cares why people follow Jesus as long as they follow Jesus? No. Jesus is more interested in your heart... This is hard for people to hear. Then your behavior. Because it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks. Behavior modification is simply to change your behavior. Christianity is about changing your behavior by changing your heart. And that's very different. And so Jesus is after your heart. And quite frankly, you're going to see he's actually after all of you. All right, so what's the motivation? Let me give you a couple of three motivations that people go to church for. One is just simply nostalgia. I I go to church because my parents went to church. Matter of fact, I'm probably sitting in the same pew that my parents sat in. And you can do that in a church that's 53 years old. You literally could be sitting in a church in the pew that you grew up in at EP. Well, not technically. Ten years ago, we changed all these pews. Maybe the same section. But it is true that we think 
that if my parents were Christians, that makes me a Christian. How do we know that? Let me give you a statistic that I think is very important. Most kids who are growing up in the church that leave the church, the number one reason why is because the faith that they left the church with was never theirs in the first place. But we assumed it was because they were our children. Do you understand? Because someone grew up in the church does not mean that they're followers of Jesus. That's nostalgia, not discipleship. A second motivation why people go to the church is not just simply because that's the way I grew up, we just go. But how about this idea of bargaining with God? God, if I go three out of four Sundays a month, I mean, only the super saints can go four out of four. Three out of four. And okay, I can, this is the kind of church that doesn't mind if I come about 15 minutes late every Sunday. Come on. Then God, maybe you can bless me with a much better life. And so some people might be here simply because they're bargaining with God. God, I I want a better job. God, I I want a better family. God, I, I want a better place to live. God, I want this. And so I'm willing to give you all of these things for you. I'm willing to give. I'm willing to go on Sunday. I'm willing to even be in a small group where they're constantly embarrassing me about asking me how my life is going. But you have got to come through to me. These are things I need to be in this world. That's bargaining. Last motivation. If the first one is nostalgia, the second is bargaining. The third is just guilt. Some people are here because they have done some terrible things. Or some terrible things have happened to them. And they've come here to swage their their souls, to to somehow make up for all the losses. That the church was the last place where somebody said something that was helpful to me. And so I'm going to the church and and try to, to, to make up for all these terrible things I have done. And Jesus is saying, if any of those three, and there are so many more motivations, then you're not, you're something, you're just not a follower of Jesus. You're just not a follower of Jesus. None of those motivations will make you a follower of Jesus. What makes you a follower of Jesus? You see it right here in verse 7. Judas has already made this big to-do about wastefulness. And and Jesus comes back, no, 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 let, let her alone. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What is that jar of perfume supposed to be for? Why does someone have a jar of perfume around that? Somebody says, well, they didn't take a lot of baths and so they use it. Not this jar. The reason they have this left over is because they didn't use it on Lazarus. Every family that had money put money away to buy a jar of perfume to keep in their house for when someone died. Because the the custom of their day 
was to put you in a cave and let your body decay, wrap you up in claws and visit your dead body every day to pour perfume on it and maybe change the bandages or put more bandages on you. Why? Because they don't want to stink up the neighborhood. The body's going to decay. You can't stop that. But they would put every day this perfume on your corpse to smother the smell of your death. This jar was the family jar that was supposed to use for Lazarus. But Lazarus has been raised from the dead. They no longer need it for Lazarus, at least not right now. But Jesus has been talking about for weeks now that he's going to the cross. He's going to die. Mary is anticipating the death of Jesus, but not in a general sense. He's going to die for the world. This is the opposite of last week's message, where Jesus came for the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. John three sixteen and 17. This is the opposite. Mary gets the, this whole idea of him dying, not just for the world, the other balance. What I love about the Bible is so balanced. He's talking about her die, him dying for her. Her act of devotion wasn't for everyone. It was her act of devotion. She knew he was going to the cross for her. Even if you were the only Christian on the face of the planet, he came for you. That's what she recognizes. And so that jar that was going to be used on Lazarus is now going to be used on Jesus. And you know that because if you'll fly to the end of the book, we won't do that right now, but you can read the end. When Mary, the Mary show up at the tomb, what are they coming to the tomb to do? To pour perfume on his body. And the grave is empty. That jar still doesn't get used. I guess it can go on and be used later. She realized Jesus was going to die for her. And so naturally, the natural response, no, it's not. The counterintuitive response is an act of devotion to him. Isaac Watts put it well in When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He has this line. He says this, where the whole realm of nature mine, if the whole world were mine, Actually, he's saying, if the whole cosmos were mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Do you see it? It's counterintuitive. If I understand what Jesus has done for me, it motivates me to give him everything of mine, which the world says, hold on to. You're not going to have a good life unless you have these things. Hold on to them. It's the Holy Spirit that opens your heart to see what Jesus has done for you. Not for you to say he owes you, but to say that you owe him. See how counterintuitive that is? The third is that following Jesus also means giving him all you have. What, what, what does Judas say? And you see Judas's remarks in 4 and 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was... This ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. This jar of perfume that was used was one year's of wages. Now you think about it. 
on your anniversary, have you ever given your spouse one year's worth of wages of a present? Your house doesn't count because that bank had to help you do that. Have you ever given anybody one year's worth of wages as a gift? That gives you some magnitude of the radical generosity and devotion of Mary. She takes what they had been saving up as a family for the burial of a family member and puts it on Jesus' feet. That's why Judas is so irate. He Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not saying don't be devoted to Jesus. I'm just saying this is excess. Let's get a sense of proportion here. Let's don't use 300 denarii on Jesus. Let's sell that. If you have to buy an ounce or two, that's one thing, but not a pound. And Judas is saying, devotion's good, excess not good. Think about what we could have done with all that money. You hear that in the church all the time. Instead of what is good, isn't that what they, they said to David? David says, my house is too nice for God not to, have, to live in a tent. And so they, they, they erect this beautiful temple for Jesus. What Jesus is talking about is a whole new accounting system that is in counterintuitive to our world. Jesus says, leave her alone in verse 7 so that she may keep it for the day of burial for the poor you will always have, but you do not always have me. And then down in verse 26, if anyone serves me, the father will honor him. What is Jesus saying? There's a new accounting system in the kingdom. Follow me is like the pearl of great price where the guy goes out and finds a pearl in a field that he doesn't own. And he sells everything he has to buy the piece of land that he doesn't need in order to get the pearl that he wants. Jesus is like that. All your joys have to come into line with Him. He has to be first. Following me has to be worth more to you than all the other joys in your life combined. Following Jesus may cost you a relationship. I don't see it. It happens a lot of times where one member of a family becomes a follower of Jesus and the rest of the family ostracize that person. Sometimes it costs you to follow Jesus. Sometimes it it may cost you money. And I think this is the most misunderstood thing about the offering on Sunday morning. We tend to think that what we do on Sunday morning, where those plates come by, Lord, I'm giving you one-tenth of all that I have or at least made this month. Where do you see that in the Bible? Jesus wants all of you. If he doesn't need one dime of yours in order for his kingdom, if he not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but the thousand hills do, what could he do with what little you could give, no matter how wealthy you are? It's not about your tenth. God, I'm really sacrificing here. What we do when we give, what we're really saying is, Lord, all of this is yours. And I'm going to represent all of it by giving you a portion of it. But if you need all of it, you just let me know. Because I've already represented all of it when I gave a portion of it. 
You see how that's different? Getting you to grow to a, to a tithe is a misnomer. God is not setting a standard of give a tithe and work to it. God's standard is I died all of me for all of you. That's why that song, uh, take my life and let it be. It's almost a misnomer. Think about it. Jesus isn't saying I died on the cross so you could give me your life. I took your life when I died on the cross. I paid for it lock, stock, and barrel. I own all of you. That's why it's so counterintuitive. And if people don't want to be a Christian because of that, I think that's perfectly fine. I think it's sad and disappointing, but I think it's fine. At least you know you're, re- you're, you're rejecting it for what it really is claiming about you. God owns all of you, not a portion of you. And if he requires it all, that's what martyrdom is. We don't make much of that. Following Jesus also may cost you your comfort and security, which is that whole idea. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That's a present far too small. When you understand the death of Jesus for you, when you have seen the king in all of his beauty, when you have the pearl of great price, then like Mary, you give him your devotion. Last, and it's got to be really quick. Following Jesus also means giving all that you are. The hardest thing to give Jesus is not your relationships, not your money, not your time. It's giving in. I am not a shepherd. I have not been around sheep. But I have read a book and I've stayed in a hotel. The greatest plight on sheep today are our parasites, not wolves. Parasites get on to the, to, onto the sheep and make the sheep sick, and often they die. The way the 21st century handled the parasites is they create a vat of antiseptic and they literally dip the sheep into the liquid that kills the parasites. I'm pretty sure it's safe to say this. The shepherd doesn't get all the sheep together and say, let me explain to you why I'm going to pick you up and put you into the vat to save your life. Why? Because they don't understand, but they do trust their shepherd. I know whom I have believed. I know who I believe. If you place any condition any term of relationship on this following, you're not following. If there's any condition to your obedience at all, then you're not following Jesus. Unless we take off all of the conditions, we're not following Him. That's, you get it? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears fruit with no conditions. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians 1.18. Covenant College uses this as its motto. Christ is preeminent in all things, including you. 
Do you realize that means over the world? As we watch the news and get all upset about what's going on in the world, God's still sovereign. Everything is moving toward the end when he makes all things new. Do you realize this means over our nation? Do you know who, where the hang, hand ringers are in our, in our country? On the day after an election, it's always in the church. We're always, man, our guy lost again. This is all going down. We are slouching to Gomorrah. Gomorrah is going to, we're going to, God's going to have to apologize to Gomorrah when he looks at America. Do you not recognize who's sovereign? Jesus is Lord. He made it and sustains it. And will come back and make it new. But that's also true of the church. Sometimes we get the impression we're running things. Especially we pastors. Jesus is Lord of the church. This is his bride. He's the one who's leading. We're just trying to figure out where he's going and start following. True, lasting, beautiful obedience is following Jesus. But that only comes from a motivation of seeing that he died for you. Then and only then, anything he asks of you is too small a present, including your devotion. Amen? Come on, Presbyterians. We say it in our hearts, don't we, Presbyterians? It's real loud in there. It's deafening. Our organs are almost bursting. You know what amen just simply means? So be it. May it be so. He's sovereign. May it be so. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful people who love you and have seen the pearl of great price. And help us to follow you every day, even when counterintuitively we really struggle with what that devotion means. Because the whole world around us tells us to go in a different direction to ourselves, save ourselves, preserve our life, bargain when all you ask us to do is to follow. Help us to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.